0: now for some Canadian content. I've recently been spending time with the music writing of Montreal's Shawn Michaels. There's nothing like it out there. Galaxies away from standard music criticism and not merely appreciation. So what is it then? His friends, the music critic Carl Wilson, calls Sean's brand of criticism imaginative bird-like devices of prose that soar in and out of the paths of songs. Almost two decades worth of this luminous prose awaits you at Said the Gramophone, the pioneering MP3 blog Sean started with friends in 2003. The blog's beat is, was, contemporary indie music in all its permutations. Folks like Arcade Fire and Baja Boulette got early props from Sean and his crew. If your tastes run towards more grubby fare, writing this thoughtful and original is worth shedding some of your snobbery over. These days, Sean's writing career doesn't leave him with much time for blogging. His first novel, Us Conductors, is a rich reimagining of the life of Leon Theremin, inventor of the Theremin, just the thing for literate music nerds. It also won Sean the Giller Prize in 2014. His second novel, *The Wagers*, is being developed into a series by streaming giant Hulu. You could say Sean's a busy guy. We're grateful he took the time to talk. You share a name with the pro wrestler Sean Mike.
1: I do. There's also a porn star, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> Google Google puts us the three of us neck and neck and neck and neck.
0: That's unfortunate. Have many family and friends mistaken stumbled across the wrong sean michaels when looking well it's very
1: telling when i when i pass my sometimes it would happen where i'd pass my credit card you know i'm paying for something at a grocery store and someone says sean michaels and then i kind of search their face to work out which (laughs) sean they uh (laughs) they're alluding to
0: (laughs) so i i don't know if i'm going to get to the porn one but if you were a wrestler what persona would you adopt sean
1: I think I've always, I mean, I'm not a really, I, 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 I'm not, a, I, don't follow wrestling. I, though I've read my share of like wrestling Wikipedia articles. I do find this. There's something interesting about the convoluted political storylines. Um, uh-huh. But I think I, I, I like those. I really, I've always really liked the wrestling personas that rely on like secrecy. Like no one knows what that, what that character's deal is. So I'd be some sort of, maybe I'd just be in a, like a giant sphere, An orb. And no one would see the wrestler inside. <laughs> you just roll over your enemies. And people would wonder, who is that? What's inside the ball?
0: And what would be your theme music?
1: Oh, that's a good question. What would be my theme music? Oh, I, I think some Eric, just some Eric Satie. A, a nice, quiet, gymnopédie, like a <laughs> piano piece <laughs> to add to the sinister energy. Yeah.
0: Is the world of wrestling ready for Eric Satie <laughs> entrance music? All
1: right. I mean, I like to imagine that a lot of these aging wrestlers, you know, when they're backstage in the locker rooms, are just putting on some nice, some nice uh, ambient music, some music for airports to help uh, calm them or yeah. ready <laughs> them.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Do you think more music writers should get creating writing MFAs or at least read more fiction?
1: I mean, I don't want to say should but each of us likes reading different things and I'm someone who I do really appreciate those music writers who have a primarily analytic bent who who can think about a piece of music or or who look at it primarily through a lens of considering I don't know how to put it but let's say thinking about the the politico personal like the political personal social threads that run through a piece of music or the the musical history stuff though honestly i have less interest in music musical history i really appreciate that but i do like it better when they're as writers they are <laughs> what you might call good writers uh which is just to say writers with a sense of style and voice who's um prose is sort of recognizable as theirs, that has its own feel and touch and smell to it. And so that kind of style stylization isn't is, is more common in fiction than it is in nonfiction. Right. A lot of nonfiction writers, especially in newspapers and journalism, are taught in some ways to like try to um wash out any sense of personal style, um, and certainly poetic style. Um and so I really prefer those writers who have a certain um, voice and grace. Well, I mean, they don't need to have grace; it can be anything. But you know, the you know the quintessential, um, you know, uh, Lester Bangs, the like quintessential, almost stereotypical great rock critic. In my view, the thing that makes him great is that his text has such a voice and style to it. Um, and there are other great rock, great critics who I don't feel as strongly about because that aspect of their work, that, that aspect is absent.
0: Do you think we need a whole bunch of Lester Bangses?
1: Yeah, well, I would love, I mean, I I, I started writing about music around the time of the, of the music blog, the MP3 blog. And it was really my hope. And for a while there, it really f- seemed like that was going to happen where there'd be hundreds or thousands. And indeed there were hundreds of people writing about music all over the world and, you know, Lots of amateurs, lots of people who aren't weren't setting out to become writers or journalists or anything, but they were writing really blogs really encouraged to have your own sense of style and, and voice. And so we were we had that. and I loved it because really that is what I, I someone writing in their own voice about their personal own personal experience of music is what I um, most uh, what I most enjoy uh, when it comes to having conversations about about music.
0: Did you find at any point when you were younger, perhaps that music cliches would occasionally sneak into your writing at all? All the time. Sort of stock critical language? Yeah, all
1: the time. And they still do. Um, they still do. It's hard. Um, I mean, even if something isn't a stock cliche, uh, you know, there's the there's the two kinds of cliches. There's the stock cliches that are phrases that we hear all the time in music criticism. I think of, I always think of angular guitars. Um but uh-huh. then there's also the cliches that of our own work, you know, the the phrases <laughs> and the like approaches that we always that that I always use, you know, and so you are you know, the exactly, Shawn Michaels crush. Exactly. And so those are even more um pernicious and difficult to kind of recognize and then to wash out because you say, Well, how else could I say this except the way that I always sort of say it? And then even things like Angular guitars, you know, Angular is a wonderful way. <laughs> I think it's a great word, great adjective to describe a certain kind of guitar sound. And so it's funny at a certain, there can be moments where you really want to describe guitars. And if you're not going to say angular, you're almost thinking of adjectives that are just synonyms of angular, sharp. And uh, I'm not sure that's any better. So
0: no, and there was probably some point in time where angular was, the most appropriate and and seemed incredibly fresh as well too. But I I guess just with overexposure, we've been deadened to its its impact and its rightness.
1: Sometimes these, these description words are one of the challenges is sometimes the language that one comes up with is kind of weirdly personal to your own neurology. You know, it doesn't, you can describe something in a way that other people just don't understand (laughs) what that means, or they don't understand the illusion or the feeling. I remember how, how, I was really proud, or proud's the wrong word, I was really delighted uh, five or ten years ago when I suddenly you know, I woke up one morning, or I was probably listening to the music, and I realized a, a wonderful way to describe the voice of Jeff Mangum from the band Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, I realized that his voice, he had a cranberry voice. It's <laughs> like a boat from the blue and I, I remember saying it to someone that day you know whoever, who knows who i was talking to and they looked at me with such a bewildered look that like cranberry voice didn't mean anything to them uh and so that's another you know i i as one strives to get away from the overused words you can you can start drawing on on descriptions that don't that are so under you that are underused and maybe should should remain that way
0: or maybe we just need to hear cranberry voice more often before it kind of enters the lexicon and we're like, oh yeah, it has a cranberry-ish quality. There's a rightness about that.
1: So, <laughs> I hope you're right.
0: I wonder if music critic readings became a thing in the way that poetry readings and fiction readings are a thing. Would critics become more self-aware and maybe less lazy perhaps?
1: Well, I do think that um I mean this doesn't connect entirely, but I, I think there is a sort of linkage between a certain kind of music criticism um, and the radio DJ tradition, um, especially those DJs which are increasingly rare, but who 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 kind of talk about a piece of music, talk about their relationship to a piece of music. There is even some CBC—I can't name them right now—but there is. I've heard a CBC show, I've heard a CBC show now and then where you know the music, especially with classical music, is a little bit interrupted at times and a little bit narrated. Um, in a way that I I feel is seems connected a little bit to a certain kind of um, music criticism. But one of the challenges in twenty in the twenty tens and the two thousands on the internet is also rights, um, you know, publishing rights and podcasts, you know, the use of music and podcasts, the use of music and kind of online broadcasts, even radio shows that are gonna also be broadcast on the internet. Like it's kind it's sort of illegal. Um, unless you're paying the rights and even paying the rights can be hard to figure out how to do Um, because it's not just the, anyway, because of the way that royalties are structured. So I've thought about, like, I've really thought about doing um, live talking about music events over the years. Um, And I may yet, but I've also thought about um, doing it as a form of recording or broadcast. And it's sort of sad that that's just for legal reasons seems so, almost impossible.
0: I want to talk about the start of said the gramophone and then maybe get to your, your sort of suggesting music, music writing criticism is kind of at a crossroads. Let's, let's get to that. I want to go back to 2003 mm-hmm. and what inspired you to start said the gramophone in the first place?
1: So I was in 2003, I was in, I was at university and I had begun a few years before writing about music for my own a kind of online magazine that i'd started with some friends and my motivation of that I, i've always wanted to be a, a fiction writer a novelist i wasn't really attracted to music criticism particularly but as a writer who is increasingly interested in music i was sort of a late bloomer when it comes to music i really got into things at, at the end of my teens um so i was really Excited by music, I was doing lots of file sharing and discovering music all the time. And then, you know, as, a, as someone who liked to write, it became, well, maybe I could try writing about this and expressing my opinion, but it was also an avenue for getting free music, free CDs. Uh, it was actually a really a big early motivator to my earliest music writing, free concert tickets, free CDs. Um, so I started doing it and I was writing these album reviews, especially for this website that i had with friends and then i just getting a bit frustrated with hamstrung by the obligation that came entirely from myself of writing these full-length album reviews you know the kind of classic three to three hundred to a thousand word album reviews i wanted to be able to write just shorter blurts so i started a blog called Set the gramophone and then several months later i almost abandoned it because i was just writing sort of random thoughts about music and it felt much too narcissistic almost navel gazing to just be say oh i was listening to this today it was good i went to this show it felt very much like a blog about me and music and and it just didn't click at all but then at the end of 2003 so about eight months after said the gramophone launched i debuted a new format where i would um choose a song or, or a couple of songs, post the mp3s to the blog so anyone could hear them and download them, and I would write about those songs. And that was a format inspired by the very small handful of blogs that were posting mp3s at that time. It was very much kind of in the gray zone of, I mean, it was illegal, but not really being strongly in f- the the laws weren't being strongly enforced but even mp3s those kind of files allowing people to download them that was a lot of bandwidth in those times um it was very rare and so there were only a handful of blogs like that such as flux blog um out of new york the the toronto blog chrome waves had a, a weekly mp3 they would post um so a couple of sites like that inspired me to sort of start this new format and it just really resonated for me it it, it yeah, that clicked, and um, and also it clicked with my audience in that, as it worked for me, um, people started to tune in and listen and read, and that that um, that reception from the internet uh, encouraged me to keep going.
0: Were you surprised that it clicked on such a massive scale?
1: Yeah, I was. I mean, I was I was I was astonished, but in in a way, it was also that thing of being eighteen or twenty. How old was I? Two thousand three, twenty one um where you don't know what is odd like you don't know what is unusual or what is usual so it's not that i had expectation of it or entitlement but it happened so gradually and naturally that it felt like this lovely thing that was happening rather than like an astonishing you know now i've seen i've been part of so many projects or i've seen so many projects where like it doesn't go you know like you make something and nobody listens or nobody reads um That I know it was unusual then, but at that time it it just felt sort of like it was fitting in in the natural internet or blog ecosystem. But I do sometimes when I talk about said the gramophone, I think it's really important to recognize. It's important for me to recognize that I wasn't very good at it to start, and it was through doing it and repeatedly posting. I was writing five days a week. Um, It was through that repetition that I improved. It was through that repetition that my voice became more uniquely my own. And it was through that repetition that I attracted, um, you know, a readership. And so it's not that I I just found the thing that instantly ignited. It was really I found the habit that I was able to maintain um, and, and nourish um, for long enough that I was able to kind of um, take it somewhere and, and find some of my kindred spirit
0: i think one of the refreshing things about the music blog explosion the mp3 blog explosion was that it was about celebrating music that the writer actually loves presumably nobody's posting an mp3 and saying and dumping on the thing and saying this is rubbish take a moment to download it (laughs) do you write music reviews at all about things that you don't like is there even a point in writing about things that you don't particularly well
1: i have done that over the years um Uh, I've written things uh, in the early-ish days of said the gramophone where I'd go to a show and I would write about uh, not liking something. Um, And in fact, in the early earliest days I was sometimes writing about music. I wasn't posting and, and giving negative reviews. And I actually found that like literally my skin was too thin for it. Um, I, I would encounter some of the musicians I'd criticized in Montreal and feel terrible like I just felt bad about it um there's my friend Howard Billerman who's now who's like a legendary Canadian indie rock producer um he drum he played drums in Arcade Fire for a while and I essentially panned his first his first show that I saw with Arcade Fire and then went on to meet him and, and felt just so bad. And he clearly felt <laughs> really hurt. Uh, and I realized, like, I do think there's a function to, I mean, I don't like my favorite kind of music writing is not just what I call the consumer guide. It's not just like, is this record, is this album worth buying or not? Like, it's not just the buying guide stuff. I, I like things that either engage with that personal response to a piece of music or else sort of chew on and think about a record in in a in a variety of ways some sometimes which can have elements of of the critical or the negative mixed in with the positive i I admire all all of that but i just know that i don't i'm not built for it um to really um i just don't get maybe i'm too much of a people pleaser and maybe or maybe i'm just too kind but i don't really like putting things into the world that that hurt the feelings or certainly that affect the livelihoods of the artists that I'm writing about. So I know that about, my, I think it's one of the reasons I'm not more of a professional music journalist now is I don't really have the, don't really have the spine for it. I leave it to those who do.
0: It's a Canadian thing, maybe too, like temperamentally, we're just not cut out to be that kind no, of I don't. antagonistic
1: <laughs> critic. No, there are, I've met some really cranky canadian music journalist who seems to have no issue i mean there's a there's a personality like there's some of these personality modern psychology has these different ways to describe a personality and and each of us can kind of fall on the agreeable disagreeable spectrum so like it's kind of your willingness to outwardly disagree with somebody and i'm someone who kind of likes to to agree with people you know to be positive or if I disagree with someone to sort of find a way to say that without seeming like I'm dismissing them. But other people are find it very easy to disagree and be cranky about it. And I think they can make really great um, critics.
0: There's definitely that tradition of, I think of like the the UK writer, Paul Morley and then Byron Coley, Lester mm-hmm. Bangs and Peter Loftner, all these guys who are running into somebody they've panned would not, you know, give them a moment's pause probably mm-hmm. um, or at least they don't let on that it does. Um, but yeah, you seem on the sweet side, Sean, <laughs> for sure. So, and, and there's something lovely about that quality too. You mentioned sort of the the gray legalities of, of posting MP3 music, but I, I imagine at some point when things started to take off, people were approaching you. Uh, were you getting a lot of unsolicited music?
1: Yeah, so I mean, as things started to, well, I mean, it was a mixture. Um, the uh, It was a mixture of in when i was fairly early in my music journalism days i was doing a lot of soliciting of music because um, again i was trying to get free records and then once i solicited then some of those labels or bands or pop, pr companies would start to send me unsolicited work um as a natural next step um but then i mean at the height of things i don't know in the late 2000s i was getting multiple cds in the mail every day every single day Um, And then, of course, it gradually that transitioned into online press releases, which still fill my Gmail. Um, But it was a delight. It was a delight. Like it felt like a bounty. And I but then I would have stacks and stacks and stacks of records nobody would ever want to listen to. I can never get rid of, Um, you know, I would have parties at my house where there would be boxes of CDs for people to take whatever you want.
0: It's hard to get rid of CDs these days. Most people I know don't have a CD player. It
1: breaks my heart. I, I was trying to flush out. I was trying to prune my CD collection just last week, and I ended up throwing out throwing out a bunch of things, and it felt so ridiculous. But I, you know, I took it by the used music shop, and they didn't want them, and um, and the weather isn't nice enough to leave them outside. So I listed some for sale for a buck um, on uh, in the local, you know, classifieds, and didn't get a single bite. So, yeah.
0: Said the gramophone is kind of as you said it's on pause or in suspended animation at the moment is that because music writing itself is kind of at a crossroads most MP three blogs you mentioned are, are probably defunct at this point and there's a few different sort of models of how to move forward that are mm-hmm. being proposed and tried out there any any thoughts on how you might proceed in the future of well Sad for the gramophone? me it's
1: a combination of two things one is being busy with like with not busy with other writing I'm, not being willing to prioritize said the gramophone as my as creative writing because i'm spending more time working on um novels (laughs) books that uh in the earliest days of said the gramophone it was before i i could count on anything that i was writing in terms of a book ever appearing ever being seen by anyone whereas now it's actually more reliable that if i publish a book i'll have readers than if i write on said the gramophone but then the other piece is sort of related to that which is you know, the absolute shoot, they say in French, the crash in, um, readership for music criticism online and music blogs, like the readership has just disappeared everywhere. And, um, you know, historically there was something it's part of it is the ego and wanting the validation of readership or response. But I think part of it is just also wanting the companionship in the sense that you're part of a community and that you're, you're contributing, you know, there's a host of people who are, who are reading and answering or responding, uh, not necessarily literally responding, but responding emotionally to what you write that gives a value to that speech, to that, to that work. And um, people have just, I mean, kind of with the dawning of Facebook, people just stopped reading these things. Yeah, I think it's it's terrible. And um, I don't, uh, I have no idea how that will be um how that can be corrected because i see i don't see i I see no trends that point to readerships increasing um i think you were alluding to some of the ways that a lot of um some music critics or arts critics are doing more newsletters and things like that but i don't get any sense that the readership is increasing it's just a platform where they can maybe make some money from that tiny readership but um you know newsletters newsletters music related newsletters i would assume um i haven't heard any different have you know subscribers in the hundreds <laughs> that's about it and that's d- like the the popular music blogs and music sites 15 years ago had readerships in the thousands and tens of thousands daily um so the readership has just vanished
0: so you're not to you're not encouraged by the substack model of subscribing to email newsletters of individual writers and paying them. You feel like we can do better.
1: Well, I I don't see it as sustainable on two sides in that I don't believe that writers who are not making much money and don't have much readership will continue, will like hang in there. Most of them Um, just having seen the bloggers gradually dwindle myself included. And then I don't think that readers have enough money in their pocket to support (laughs) an ecosystem like there's not enough money out the market isn't big enough in a way to support that ecosystem financially to just have everyone oh everyone's making a living so or or, like a piece of a living so there's all these writers who are sustained by it um like how many music journalists can you imagine being sustained by paid Substacks? like i don't know 20 (laughs) less maybe a bit more um but internationally you know the the most forms of writing relied on professionalized writing, relied on advertising revenue, still do in, in, you know, newspapers and magazines or maybe subscriptions, but people going it alone. Like I can only afford to pay $5 a month to like a small handful of people. Like that's not $60 a year to me is a lot of money.
0: And do people need to band together and, and be a bit more creative with this? Not maybe chuck it, but find some way to tweak this to make it sustainable. Yeah, I
1: mean, it's almost trying to imagine a future that doesn't exist, so it's hard to say what it should or would look like, but I've been really um, swayed by the arguments of people like the musician Matt, musician and theorist Matt Dryhurst, who's argued for, uh, you know, ecosystems of artists to um, work together and then, to find a more sustainable model that way. And whether that means like an ecosystem, say a geographical ecosystem. So a group of Montreal writers or Montreal writers and musicians and dance, who knows? um, Or whether that means sort of kindred spirits um, that aren't linked by geography, but by sensibility. I mean you used to call it, you might call these things magazines you know like 10 you know 10 get your 10 favorite writers and have a have a subscription model where you pay for all 10 um but uh, but he's talked about more notions of of thinking of it more as like a guild or a or different kind of clubs and um those net, thinking about those networks in different ways and where maybe the readership is part of the Network in a way, you know, like instead of seeing it as we're going to have a publication mm. and then there's an audience who pays for it, are there different ways to how ha- to think about this that involves kind of bringing, um, making the community of readers and authors somehow part of the same thing in a way that um, money also t- uh, trades um, moves hands um, to make it sustainable, economically sustainable. But I think that's the only way like the patreon substack thing like unless the government becomes involved i mean you're in canada so i can make my case i really feel like the Canadian it would be exciting to see the canadian government supplement its current arts funding by essentially creating patreon like a patreon-like platform that's publicly funded so imagine a world where canadians are each every single canadian is given essentially a ten dollar credit um, that they can spend on any artists like put in an artist's pocket every month as a form of arts funding, you know things like that, I think would be a, another way to work on this um but it just I mean, yeah, people only have so many sixty dollar a month tickets to give out so many parts of the economy, all relying on individual people's sixty dollar you know five dollar a month, sixty dollar a year. Contributions seems completely unsustainable. It's, I mean, so many of the people, artists, writers, creative people I know are basically all the, sixty-five percent, seventy five percent of the money they receive is just from their family and friends, and and that is not, uh, it's not sustainable.
0: What will that mean basically for for the arts, for criticism, if people can't make any kind of living and they're relying on the pity of family and friends? Are these people just getting day jobs and and doing this on the side out of
1: love? Yeah, and I mean, so I think it'll be a, a general ha- continued hollowing out. You know, there's just fewer people doing stuff um, and a kind of, yeah, and an impoverishment of arts and culture in the world. I really believe that. But I also think in particular um, that we're going to be getting less creative work by people between the ages of 30 and 50 maybe 30 and 60 i mean that's always been you know in things like pop music obviously the age between the ages of 30 and 60 aren't the most like uh, famous uh the bulk of the most celebrated pop music doesn't come from those ages uh, in a really ageist way but also a real way i mean but also a uh, kind of natural way as pop music seems like a youthful thing but I, I, all those people who are doing things for love um, i think that they will lose steam um or have other economic other aspects of their life or aspects of society will demand from them and i think we're just going to get less music less art less criticism less everything from people who are in their i guess you could say middle age that makes me really really sad but that's where i see i see yeah i don't know about you but what i see is is uh friends and but not just friends peers people i admire um it's so that they just don't continue um in a way where I think they might've been able to, you could have your site, you know, you could have your day job, but you still contribute to the newspaper. You still contribute to the local college radio, you know, whatever it is. Um, but if there's no readership and no money, then it's hard to keep doing things for, for years and years, through your forties, I think. And musicians, like all the musicians are just going to stop. Like they're, if the only money is from touring um, they can't do that at a certain point, unless it's more lucrative. So, we're going to lose all of the great music that would have come out of, um, you know, grown up, mature musicians, all the the kind of the likes of the David Berman, Silver Jews, Destroyer, um, you know, the artists that aren't uh, rich enough off a song, you know, we'll still have Joni Mitchells or whatever people who Taylor Swift's who have made enough money that they will make music their whole life. I'm sure. But the kind of career uh, um, Yola Tango's, I think it's going to get increasingly hard for those musicians to keep working um, as their as their touring revenue diminishes um, to make an argument for like hitting the road again or making another record in, when they're 35 or 45 or 55.
0: Are you hopeful that perhaps the, the younger demographic may come up with some like entrepreneurial ways to have their art and have it like find some sustainable models to, to make this work?
1: yeah i am hopeful i think the youngest like generation um Z, z's like the their actual kids like so we're talking about people under the age of 25 or so 29 or so not not because i'm an i'm an old millennial it's definitely not us millennials who are doing it but i do think that the people who really grew up with the internet as it is now um more of them have a sense of how impoverished use that word again um arts and culture is or or will be i even see it in the kind of unionization of a lot of creative workers at the low end um so i'm hopeful that they will because they see this for what it is they'll they'll come up with some kind of solutions but the people who are my like my generation i think we we it's like growing up within capitalism we can't really see a way out we're too um we feel too powerless uh within a system that grew up around us. I don't know. So that's both optimistic and pessimistic.
0: <laughs> Where are interesting conversations about music taking place today?
1: I mean, they're not happening very much. Um, the little bit that is happening is like a relationship between some, pri- some writers on their sub stacks, um, and kind of then their readership on Twitter. Um, but, I don't see much. I see very little of that. Um, like, I really think there is very like it's <laughs> when you're a question like that leads to that answer. But I think it's sort of saying that there's a whole bunch happening there overstates the reality. There's not much happening there. You know, the I'll read a, a really fascinating essay about some, something, a piece of music. And the discussion of it is is really <laughs> like, OK, there's like 30, 20, 30 tweets but it's like that's not really a uh, it's not really a discussion of it um so I don't know that it's happening anywhere in that sense there are interesting there's interesting kinds of talking about music thinking about music that are happening on TikTok um kind of video discussions of music um but In terms of long form writing about music, where is it happening? I think it's, it's happening. Just not, it's not happening very much. It was like, it used to be that the, that Facebook was sapping the energy in that people were kind of having arguments about music instead of having them on message boards or on blogs, they were having them with their friends on Facebook. You know, someone would post a, at least that's the impression I had. Someone would post, you know, a few paragraphs on their wall and then get to an argument with their, with their friends and, acquaintances, but with the kind of withering of Facebook as well, you know, a lot of people withdrawing from that platform, it hasn't, that energy hasn't gone anywhere else. So, um, I think it's just not happening.
0: If we could switch gears for just a sec, there's a cliche switch gears, eh? Mm. Um, How do you approach writing fiction versus music criticism? Can you move easily between writing fiction and criticism? Or do you have like a, do you experience task switching and you need to take a bagel, like a bagel break before you move into the other?
1: (laughs) No, they feel very linked. I mean, music criticism depends. So this year I've been doing, I've had quite a run of doing some band bios, artist bios recently. So the sort of one sheets for bands as they put out albums the press release one sheets and that feels very much like sort of engineering architectural stuff you're really literally describing a project or or the origins of a project it's not really reflecting on the music in the same way um and so that kind of architectural work does not feel that related to me to writing fiction literary fiction um it's more kind of argument it's more essayistic well no it's not even essay i don't know it's it feels like advertising copy in a way um but writing about music in the way i most like to write about music doesn't feel that far off from writing fiction because in both cases i'm trying to evoke and allude to sensations phenomenon phenomena uh feelings That I don't necessarily have a vocabulary for like when I'm writing about music, I'm trying to find a vocabulary to describe my experience of that music like uh, so much of the experience of music is is indescribable is dancing about architecture. Um, And so I'm trying to find the word, how do I express how this makes me feel maybe it's through poetic language maybe it's through clear language maybe it's through a metaphor or a story um so that, that that's what I'm kind of going through and when I'm writing fiction I'm really also I'm trying to how do I express the feelings that are bubbling below the narrative how do I express sort of what's at the heart of this story um, in a way that conveys it uh, most effectively or most vividly and that's often, again, not the not by saying it uh, explicitly. Um, sorry, maybe that's not clear. But you know, if a character has a particular kind of sadness or a particular kind of happiness or a particular kind of discomfort or or appetite or passion, the best way to convey that is not in my for me to say like the character was sad, the character began to cry. It's it's to describe. The scene to describe the feelings and and sense experiences of that character in a particular way that evokes hopefully for the reader those unnamed unnameable specific feelings and similarly when i'm writing about music i want to try to find the words that evoke in the kind of dreamscape of the reader um the same feelings
0: that takes a lot of imagination i think it's a lot easier to simply describe what you're hearing and use stock critical music language what you're talking about is, is capturing and, and sort of conveying aspiring to that music somehow and what it's achieving that takes a lot of imagination are, are most writers cut out for this kind of thing
1: yeah well I mean I think it's just a muscle of I think it's about recognizing it's a muscle you have to develop but when we talk with our friends about music or musical experiences i find uh if you put on a record and you're sitting with a friend of yours um and you talk about the music nobody really says uh or it's rarer to say something like oh i really love the angularity (laughs) i love these angular (laughs) guitars and the way uh you know i mean you might say i like this part i like that part um which obviously isn't very descriptive people talk a lot more about illusion make a lot more illusions and 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 metaphors in the way that they you know it really becomes about trying to express to the convey to the other person your enthusiasm oh i love the saxophone here it's so oh it's got this scritchy like it's just like feels very much like you know, a guy who just sticks his head into the frame with a big saxophone and, and, and plays the song or, or, oh man, this makes me really makes me remember this time. And then they, they go off and tell a story that seems to have nothing to do with the song, but it does, it does, because that story evokes for the teller the same or similar feelings to what this song is evoking for them. And so I think we're really used to having to thinking about and having conversations about music in this more elusive way, in this more, Um, in using metaphor so using other terms or other words or other experience to describe what this this musical experience is i think we're really used to it but we're not we're a lot of people are out of the habit of relying on that or drawing on that when they write music music reviews um and some people don't like it in music reviews they want to just be told like more about the time signature and and historical origins of a of a sound and they're not that interested in like i don't want to hear about what (laughs) that that this album makes you reflect upon your childhood like i don't care but i do care like i do want (laughs) i'd want that very much um so some of it's about taste but i I mean i think everyone's got almost everyone has that capacity to relate to art because we are relating to art in this uh, through our imaginations you know like uh, a piece of music is making us imagine and and is making us imagine things and remember things. And so it's just about narrating that experience a little bit more.
0: You wrote a piece in 2014 for the National Post about musical prose and what makes for a musical prose.
1: Hmm. I mean, I don't remember. <laughs> what, what did I say in that piece? Was it about like the phonetics of prose?
0: I think talking about how... It's, it's more than just a matter of mechanics. Like some writers have, mm-hmm. I'd say you have like this very precise, lyrical, elegant, graceful kind of prose. But I, I think you said it's something more than that. You mentioned a few writers like Toni Morrison and, and, and others whose music doesn't just have that musical quality, but also makes you want to dance somehow. Hmm. I should have read it more closely myself.
1: Well, I mean, so- There's I'm... not
0: much of a question here.
1: <laughs> I am someone who, I mean, for whom the- the son- sonority that the phonetic lyricism of prose matters it affects me. When I was, uh, Catherine Leroux is a wonderful writer here in Montreal who also translated my first novel and is and is currently translating my second book. And um, when we had early conversations about her translation, because I do read French. Um, sometimes I would say she would have picked a word, you know, she would have translated a phrase in a certain way. And I would say, actually, like, I don't like this translation, this word, um, because it's true that is a direct translation of what I've written. That's the best, most accurate translation. But the sound, literally the sound, the, the, the phonetic sounds of the word are so different that to me it evoked something very, very different. And I would say sometimes to her that it's more important to me that this I think it's more important that this phrase sound have have a similar sound than be exactly literally the translation, and so I think that's uh, that kind of sound music of uh, writing is really important, um, and and can do a lot of the work of conveying meaning. You know, it's one thing to choose the right words that most accurately describe something, but it's also to Find language that gives, puts the, a feeling into the reader's ear or body. Um, that, that is, um, that travels alongside the meaning you're conveying in the words.
0: Sean, is there a song playing in your head right now?
1: Um, (laughs) no, (laughs) but, but I was just thinking a few moments ago, I was just thinking about, um, one of my favorite songs of all time, um, the, called uh the banks of the nile by fathering jay fathering fathering gay fathering jay anyway sandy denny uh Herken, oh kinda, yeah yeah, kinda yeah. You know, post uh for yeah, yeah. uh adjacent project banks of the nile um which i heard a lot as a kid the guitar notes of that music are to me just so evocative of of a feeling like a, a childhood feeling but that I that is would is very very hard for me to understand in a way that I could put into words. You know, like just express <laughs> it. It's really a feeling I would have to evoke. You know, uh, I mean, what I mean is that I don't think I could I could just explain the feeling. I would have to try to. All I could do was try to write something that evokes the same feeling in the reader but it wouldn't be by saying, well, the guitar makes me like the echoing sound kind of... I, I couldn't I couldn't explain it.
0: A hearty thanks to Sean for joining us. Learn more at Sean's website, byseanmichaels.com. That's BY seanmichaels.com. Though, of course, you should B-U-Y everything by Sean Michaels. Also, a shout out to the mighty Jeff Miller, said the gramophone's trusty punk reviewer for years, and the mind behind the legendary zine Ghost Pine. I miss you, dude. If you're on Twitter, you can find us at RockritPod. We're back again in two weeks. Thank you for listening.